This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and today I have an exciting, awesome guest. I have Dr. Robert Watson to talk about his great new book called George Washington's Final Battle, The Epic Struggle to Build a Capital City and a Nation, a book that I have never read before and a book that I just thought was a really interesting topic that, quite frankly, I didn't know much about the building of the U.S. Capitol. So thank you so much, Dr. Watson, for being on. I really appreciate it. Is it okay if I call you Robert? Of course. Is it okay if I call you Daniel? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. So before we jump into the book, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, where do you teach? Where did you get your PhD? Sure, sure. So I'm I'm a professor. I'm an historian. Uh, I'm at Lynn University which is a private school in Boca Raton, Florida, Southeast Florida. Uh, I have the title Distinguished Professor of American History and Avrin Fogelman Research Professor. This, I think, is my 31st year as a professor. I've taught at a number of places from the University of London to Florida Atlantic University to the University of Hawaii. I did brief stints at Georgetown, Stanford, Northern Arizona, Yale, uh, Troy, so yeah, I moved around a lot for the first 10, 12 years of my career, just as an excuse to travel. I've been here for, for quite a while. Um, I'm a Virginia Tech grad. And, uh, you know, I, I Daniel, to, to sound nerdy, but to be honest, um, I can't, sometimes I pinch myself. I can't believe I get paid to, to talk about history and read, write, and study history. So it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, passion of mine and uh, love writing books on history and there's not been a day, quite frankly, in 31 years where I don't get up and, and enjoy going to uh, going to work. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, how often have you been to Georgetown? Where the because the book was published by Georgetown University Press, which I thought was you know definitely relevant to the topic of the book. Yeah, so I, I taught briefly at Georgetown, um, and uh, I get to Washington D.C. all the time. I've done a lot of research at the Library of Congress and other facilities in D.C. I've done some guest lecturing at the uh, Pentagon, the Smithsonian, the National Archives, the Society of the Cincinnati. Uh, both my kids are, are going to college in Washington, D.C. So I love the city. It's probably my favorite city in the United States. Who doesn't love the, you know, the majestic buildings, the government buildings, the touching memorials and monuments? The, the National Mall is truly a national treasure. So love the city. And in fact, that was one of the things that sparked my interest in writing this book is as much as I love the city, and I find that many Americans just love DC, but I find that almost no one 
knows how Washington, D.C. came to be our capital city or the history of it, much less the absolutely intriguing story uh, behind uh, our, nas- our national capital. Yeah. And what I really liked about your book was the fact that it was almost like a, a mini biography of George Washington, but at the same time, wrapping in the whole saga of the creation of the U.S. Capitol, but also the United States. I mean, it's a book that hits on a lot of different points. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. And that's by design. Um, you really can't talk about the history, creation and history of the city without talking about George Washington. It was his pet project. I mean, it was his passion. In fact, the title of the book, George Washington's Final Battle, was he pretty much devoted the last 10 years of his life uh, to this project. He died on December 14, 1799. So really from about 89 to 99, you know, laser focus on the capital city. Uh, I think if you take Washington out of the equation, American history is fundamentally different and worse off. And uh, I don't know that we have the capital city. So he pretty much single-handedly dragged this thing kicking and screaming into existence. Uh, Also, uh, one of Washington's brilliant observations was, you know, we have a brand new nation. Um, The framers and all their wisdom and genius, but also boldness, put together a government heretofore unseen on this planet. You know, they went way beyond the Roman Senate. They went way beyond what the classic Greek philosophers even contemplated and putting together a government that Lincoln would later call of by for the people. Uh, So we have a brand new challenging government. We have no capital city. So Washington has this vision. We'll build a brand new city and it will grow up hand in hand with this brand new government. The government will inform the city, but more importantly, the city will help shape and assure the continuity of this government. Now, the kicker is that's a pretty heady, Daniel. That's a pretty heady uh, observation. And too often we don't give a tribute to Washington, the traits of being an intellectual and a visionary. That's reserved for Jefferson, Hamilton, Franklin, Madison, and others. But Washington, while not formally well-educated, not on an intellectual level of those folks, he was no slouch and he was quite a visionary. So this is a a, a remarkable vision by Washington. And I was able to uh, put two check marks in my, I guess, my career plan I write about a lot of historical topics, and I always wanted to write a book about Washington, George, and always wanted to write a book about Washington, the city. And in doing this, I was able to do both in the same project. That's awesome. So I know you were talking about how George Washington had like this great vision to see what the capital city would entail for the for the United States, what it would represent. But how did his early career, how did his exploits prepare him? for the politics of building a capital? Because we know George Washington, the general, we know George Washington, the president, but we often, before your book, have not really talked about George Washington, the political savvy statesman, wheeling and dealing to get this project completed. Yeah, Washington had a lot more political savvy than we give him credit for. In fact, uh, the popular narrative is just the opposite. Uh, We tend to say Washington disliked politics and was apolitical which of course is is insane. How does anybody uh, succeed in the Constitutional Convention and become the country's first president and be apolitical? Everything was political. Uh, Washington was very political. Uh, his early career, you know, the um, being the, the commanding general of a ragtag band of poorly trained farmers and ill-equipped blacksmiths taking on the world's greatest military power, 
and with a Continental Congress that was broke, uh, was plotting against him and was unwilling to fund the war, you better have some political skills to keep that thing together. Um, Washington also was, uh, we need to remember, he was something of an architect. You know, he spent his entire adult life um, tinkering with Mount Vernon, the building he initially inherited from his late brother Lawrence and then uh, another relative was not the Mount Vernon that we know today. He was always expanding, tinkering. So Washington was creative. He was something of an architect. He had base level political skills and we don't give him credit uh, for that. The other thing that factors into the Capitol was Washington grew up in and around the Potomac and he loved the Potomac River. In fact, kind of naively, he once compared the Potomac with the Rhine, the Seine, you know, the Danube, the Thames, uh, you know, and, and, you know, with all due respect, it's not those rivers, but he had not traveled, of course. So he had, I guess, an exaggerated view of the Potomac, but he knew it all the way to its headwaters. He had canoed it. He had surveyed it. Uh, he spent his life in and around it, and he knew the importance of a capital city being located next to an important navigable body of water. The Potomac gives you access to the Chesapeake, which gives you access to the Atlantic, which gives you access to the world. He also knew that the Potomac was something, you know, almost equidistant between the North and the South. And yes, those sectional and regional uh, conflicts were starting at the very beginning. The South was basically saying, if the capital's not in the South, you know, we don't sign the Constitution, we walk. The South was never known for compromising or cooperating, um, whereas it pretty much needed to be in the North because the only true cities that had the infrastructure and all the other necessary amenities to host a capital would be New York City, Philadelphia, and Boston. So Washington has to massage those regional differences and find a point on the 50-yard line, you might say, equidistant. So when you begin to look at it, a lot of these things from Washington's early life really come into play uh, in, uh, in this, uh, this, this uh, location of the Capitol. Let me give Daniel, if I may, one example. Um, in 1790, they voted on the Residence Act. The Residence Act is finally the bit of legislation that locates the Capitol, where is it going to be, and gives all the details. It, puts some, you know, meat on the bones and crosses the T, dots the I's and so on. So when they initially vote on this, uh, it's four votes shy in the Senate. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but one, the politics of the founding era were as partisan and bitter as they are today. So getting anybody to flip was a Herculean task. Number two, there's not that many senators. So four votes then would be like being 10, 12 votes shy today. So that's not, a, a, you know, an easy task. Washington instructs Madison and others, call for another vote right away, you know, maybe even immediately after the lunch break, the lunch break. Um, they think he's mad. You can't call for another vote because then you're going to lose that and perception is reality in politics. And this whole capital business is going to look like a desperate plan. And now it's going to be even harder to, to make compromises and deals. Washington says no call for a vote. So what Washington wants, Washington gets. Over lunch, he basically visits four senators, not five, not six, not seven, visits four. He knows exactly the which, four, which four to approach. He flips all four and they vote for it and his Residence Act carries. So if that's not 
an insight into some pretty impressive political acumen. I don't know what is. Yeah, sounds like it. So you had mentioned also that, you know, for to build a capital, it just seemed like a lot of the cities or the viable cities were more in the north. And, you know, in the book in the early on, you talk about how it was it was a struggle to find a place to put Washington, D.C., because even before they finally, you know, figured out the place where they were going to put it, you know, between Virginia and Maryland, but they they also moved the capital from place to place. Why was that? Why couldn't they just like pinpoint one city? You know, it's in Philadelphia, it's in New York City, it's in another city, et cetera, et cetera. Good. Uh, good observation. Good question. So we need to remember that the Revolutionary War started in 1775, and we really don't have an, a capital that's permanent, uh, a seat of government that's open for business until November 1st, 1800. That's 25 years. That's a quarter of a century. Uh, founding a brand new type of government and having no capital city for it, that's a recipe for disaster. That's no way to start a country. So um, this was an uphill battle from the very get-go. Washington had trouble, and uh, indeed, all the framers, founders and later framers would have trouble locating a capital because in part of parochialism, Everybody wanted their own city to be the capital. Uh, one reason was economic self-interest. Imagine you're from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or you're from Annapolis, Maryland, or you're from Albany, New York, or whatever the case may be. If your city gets the capital, your property values have just increased tenfold. Uh, the entire federal government, the Congress, the military, all move into your city. So what a bonanza. Secondly, it's a, it's a building an economic boom for all the infrastructure that's going to come along. All the boarding houses and taverns and everything else is going to have the benefit of having the entire government relocate there. So everybody wanted their own city to be the capital. It became such a problem that you would find, for example, in Connecticut, New Haven and Hartford were both under consideration. But what they did is they both spent their days bad-mouthing and undermining the other one because they didn't want another city in the state to be more powerful. They wanted to be more powerful. Meanwhile, in Maryland, Baltimore and Annapolis spend their energies undermining one another because they want to have the capital. The only time Baltimore and Annapolis work together is to make sure the capital doesn't go to Connecticut. The only time that Hartford and New Haven work together in other cities is to make sure the capital doesn't go to Maryland. So everybody's arguing, everybody's promoting their own parochial self-interest. So as a result, it, it was nobody could pick a capital and everybody opposed any location that wasn't their own city. There was even something of a joke, Ben Franklin and others joked about this. They said, maybe what we should do is we should have a rotating capital and we should build like a Trojan horse and we should hide Congress in it because it was so unpopular and wheel it up to a city and hope that they let it in and quick do their business and then get out before anybody realizes. So uh, it was becoming a, a real problem uh, until Washington finally steps in and actively says, look, we want the capital along the Potomac River. Uh, not coincidentally, near property that he owned, and we all know about his home, Mount Vernon. So it was a, um, a multi-year, uh, you know, lock your horns fight um, and uh, it, it looked at several times like we may never get a capital. 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I also what I liked about your book was that you even talked about, you know, in early American history, you talk about, you know, Jeffersonian politics, Hamiltonian politics, you know, the building of parties and how the how you're talking about how there's this divisiveness, but also you're starting to see the birth of political parties and how they're kind of even battling out of where the capital should be, but also how the capital should look, right? Because Jefferson, as you wrote, was not pleased with how grandiose Washington wanted this capital to be, correct? Absolutely. You're spot on. So um, on one hand, you see the parties, what was a Federalist and an anti-Federalist faction. The Federalists would be people like Hamilton, uh, John Jay, Franklin, John Adams. Washington would be a Federalist. He just didn't say it. Uh, more Northern, uh, you know, tended to be better educated, wanted a more active role for government. The anti-Federalist faction was Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, more Southern slave owners, rural. They wanted less government. And uh, these factions pretty much form to, into our first two political parties. And, and they, they are split on a number of issues. Washington makes a couple of interesting observations where he writes that of all the debates during the Constitutional Convention, and we now know that the framers weren't always standing around shaking hands, you know, agreeably and civilly. They fought at the Constitutional Convention. Washington says that of all the debates, the most heated was where do we put the Capitol? So imagine that being more heated than the three-fifths clause, or how do we elect a president? So the Capitol was a huge debate. In fact, Washington and others worried that during the Constitutional Convention of 1787, if they tried to pick a location for the Capitol, people would not sign the Constitution. That is how divisive and heated the debate was. So what they did is what Congress typically does. They kick the can down the road a bit. They, they signed the Constitution without an identifiable location for the capital city. They simply said that it would be, quote unquote, 10 miles square, which is awfully big. But they, um, they couldn't even resolve it at the Constitutional Convention. So that was one argument. Now, even when they identify possible locations for the Capitol, and even when they start building it in what is today Washington, D.C., there's a whole nother debate. And that is, as you correctly noted, Daniel, over what I call the architect politics of architecture. Uh, and that is, what should the Capitol look like? There is a distinct Jeffersonian vision for this country of being an agrarian you know, collection of small farmers with everybody, a little dirt under your fingernail, working the land humbly, and that would keep people equal and, you know, uh, humble before God kind of a thing. Therefore, Jefferson and his ideologues, as well as his southern slave owner base, they wanted a simple little federal town with a one-story brick building here and there, separated by fields and forests. The politics of architecture is important. If your capital city is a handful of little brick buildings in the middle of bogs, fields, and forests, that means you don't have much of a federal government. If you don't have much of a federal government, you don't have much power in the government, and therefore, where does the power lie? Southern slave owners. So once again, as was the case all the way through the Civil War, slavery is uh, the tail that's wagging the dog here. Um, whereas Washington had a different vision. He saw the capital as being Rome, uh, inspired by ancient Athens with marble-looking columns and the majesty of Rome and wide, grand boulevards with uh, monuments and large public squares. He saw a city for the ages, quote-unquote, as he called it. So there was a huge disagreement over that. 
And where these two political parties really come into play and where Hamilton and Jefferson and their legendary feud, the two of them didn't like one another, they were on opposite sides of everything. Where this comes into play is uh, June uh, 19th and 20th of 1790, uh, Jefferson invites Hamilton for basically a dinner party. Uh, and Jefferson also invites Madison. We're in complete gridlock. We can't pick the capital. We don't know what it should look like. We don't have a financial plan. We can't develop a currency. We don't have a bank. We're in debt. And, and everything the North and the Federalists tried to do to govern, the Southern Anti-Federalists said no. I mean, they just were obstructing. They weren't an opposition party. They were an obstructionist party, which I think there's some parallels to today. But um, so what was happening was Jefferson finds out that Washington, the problem for Jefferson was whenever he and Hamilton argued, Jefferson being the Secretary of State, Hamilton the Secretary of the Treasury, Washington always backed Hamilton because they had almost a father-son relationship. So Washington and Hamilton are on the outs. So Jefferson says, now is the time to strike. So he invites Hamilton over to his rented home at 57 Midden Lane in New York City. That's where the interim capital was before it went to Philly, before it went to Washington. And Jefferson invites Madison. He and Madison are going to team up and dupe Hamilton. What they didn't realize was Hamilton was not only intelligent, but he was, you know, sly, crafty like a fox. So the short story is Hamilton dupes Jefferson and Madison and gets everything he wants. One of the things he gets was what should the Capitol look like? Jefferson even proposes we should have a design contest, knowing that the country lacked architects. Jefferson, it appears, submits his own design anonymously for a little humble federal city with a brick building. Um, and he picks his own design saying this is what we'll do. Hamilton appears to go along with it because Hamilton knew all along. When Jefferson would present that design to Washington, Washington would hit the roof. Absolutely not. Washington wanted Rome. So Washington basically recruits uh, Pierre Charles L'Enfant, the great French architect and engineer, who was a perfect choice to build his capital. L'Enfant fought in the war. So Washington and others knew him and trusted him. Uh, L'Enfant was a mason, which you know Washington and others were. L'Enfant was classically educated, plus he was a megalomaniac. L'Enfant wanted to build the world's greatest city, and that was fine by Washington. So it's Washington and L'Enfant that really create uh, what they saw as a national mall, grand boulevards, big public intersections with memorials, put the president's house and the Capitol on raised hills uh, to show a, a level of importance. And Jefferson was livid at all of this and realized that Hamilton basically dupes him on everything. So the political parties and the rivalry between Hamilton and Jefferson really do come into play in, in factoring into all these big questions surrounding this new nascent capital city. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Fascinating stuff. 
So you kind of touched on it here. You talk about how Washington navigated the divisiveness of Capitol building. Obviously, he's navigating the divisiveness between people within his own cabinet. But how did he – You, I, I loved how in the book you kind of compared Washington to Dwight Eisenhower, right? How there was almost like a, a hidden hand behind the scenes, but yet publicly Washington always looked as if he was you know, above the fray. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That's, that's a great analogy, the hidden hand uh, concept, no question. You know, uh, one of the best ways to enhance your public image and power is to give the appearance that you want none of it. Um, and Washington was very dramatic and theatrical when he wanted to be and was a master of the moment. And if anybody gave the impression that he wanted nothing to do with the trappings of power, it was Washington. Uh, but behind the scenes, he was engaged in this project. Washington literally helped survey the land for the capital. Remember, he was a surveyor of Culpeper County, Virginia as a teenager. It was basically his first job. Washington literally helps pick the site, helps pick some of the Scottish stonemasons and the masons to help build the city, picks the architect. Washington sells plots of land. He buys plots of land. He hated the idea of demeaning himself to sell land, but he knew if he showed up at the auction, everybody would buy it based on his reputation. Washington does everything but put a hard hat tool belt on and hammer the nails into the buildings. So, I mean, A to Z, this is his project, yet he plays, you know, above the fray throughout it. Um, so this, uh, you know, the capital city Washington really sees as, uh, you know, one of his main legacies. And lo and behold, I, I believe it is truly one of his main legacies. And he has many, you know, first president, uh, you know, father of his nation, the commanding general of the Revolutionary War. Uh, but, you know, building the city that would end up bearing his name. Uh, and uh, by the way, the original name they were chewing on was Washingtonopolis. <laughs> so a good thing they cut it to Washington. But um, so, yeah, he really plays um, the lead role. And of course, one of the just like uh, Shakespeare, or, uh, you know, Greek tragedy here, the city that Washington forges out of nothing. They literally built this majestic city bigger than Paris, bigger than London, out of bogs and fields with nothing. Um, and, and he guides it through. He doesn't live to see its completion. The city opens just about one year after his death. So, you know, we, we like to travel up and down the East Coast to boarding houses, and they all have a little sign saying Washington slept here. <laughs> The answer is probably not, but we know where one place he didn't sleep, and that was the, the uh, what is now the White House. John Adams was the first person to move in on November 1, 1800. So what a tragedy that Washington doesn't live to see this great vision through its full uh, completion and fruition. Uh, but um, I'm sure he would be delighted with the majesty uh, globally uh, that this, you know, darn near unparalleled capital city is today. Yeah. Now you also touched on how, you know, the Capitol, it's obviously representing the grandiose ideas of Washington, democracy, republicanism, you know, all the things that people wanted wanted to look like Rome. But there was also a lot of contradictions within the city. And I, I love that you touched on that within the book. What were some of the troubling circumstances or the contradictions of how this capital city was built? Yeah. So, yeah, there's, you know, both sides of the coin, as you correctly note, Daniel, you know, so on one hand, Washington saw it as more than a city. He understood Jefferson's idea of the politics of architecture. He knew that the city would be the very embodiment 
of not only this fledgling republic, but the more important ideas and ideals of democracy and self-government. And the design of the city was all meant to enforce that and reinforce it, you know, naming the streets for the uh, the states, um, the size of that president's house in the Capitol and on opposite hills apart from one another, a, a physical manifestation of checks and balances and separation of power. So the design was truly enlightened. There was uh, a, an absolutely ugly underbelly to it, and that was they ran out of money while trying to build the city and would ultimately end up relying on slave labor. So a few years ago when Michelle Obama quipped that, you know, as a black woman, first black first lady, she was always cognizant that when she went to bed at night, she was going to bed into a the people's house, but also a house built by slaves. And she got a lot of criticism for that, but she was actually correct. So um, a lot of slaves toiled. Imagine the hot, humid summers of, of Washington in a quarry with a pickaxe quarrying tons of rock uh, to build the city. It was backbreaking labor. And an irony was a lot of Southerners, mostly slave owners, opposed uh, the design of the city because it would make the government too powerful. They want, they backed Jefferson's vision. But later they came on board because they realized they could lease their slaves and make money off of both slavery and building the city. And Washington, his architects, his three federal commissioners, the Congress, everybody pretty much had no choice, no capital or use slave labor. And they chose the difficult latter decision. When John Adams moves into the building, um, he is disgusted, uh, not only by the fact that there's only about six rooms completed in, in the building we now know as the White House and all around was just a you know, swamp of mud and sawing and hammering and debris. But he was disgusted by the sight of slaves toiling to build this democracy. And when Abigail, his wife, uh, later came to the capital city, she was absolutely appalled that everywhere she looked, she saw slaves toiling. So this magnificent city and our Temple of Liberty, our Capitol building, uh, really, uh, you know, slave labor was responsible for so much of it. And that is, um, and in some ways, I guess that would be a microcosm of both the majesty and hypocrisy or contradictions that is America, uh, that we're launching this remarkable, unprecedented republic, but doing so on slave labor. So yeah, that was, that was troubling to almost everybody involved in the project. Wow. Yeah. And I loved how you brought that out in the book. Again, it was that contradiction within the capital of just all the grandiose plans of the United States yet the, like you, I like how you described the underbelly of the United States and what actually made that happen. And it was slavery. It seems like slavery is just constantly popping up in the early Republic and it just never goes away. And you even see it within the Capitol building. So fascinating stuff. Yeah. Yeah, We need to remember, you know, Daniel from the three fifths clause to some of the debates at the constitutional convention, to the Missouri compromise, to, uh, Dred Scott, the infamous Supreme Court decision to Plessy v. Ferguson at the end of that 1800s, that, that century, uh, separate but equal. I mean, the presence of slavery as a divisive wedge and as an irony in everything that this nation was about, it's ever present. It's in our laws. It was in our, our, our treaties. It's in our, you know, it, it seemed to be bled into the DNA of who this nation 
you know, was. And of course, the likes of John Brown and Abraham Lincoln always pondered whether, you know, the bondsmen will be paid in blood uh, and blood's going to have to be spilt to, to right this ship of state and this this uh, great hypocrisy. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, even from the beginning over, in fact, uh, some of the early arguments, they um, one of the deals that Hamilton and Jefferson cut in that dinner party was that New York City, nobody liked New York City at the time. Uh, Fisher Ames, a, a kind of a hoot of a congressman from Massachusetts, said that New York City was overrun by, quote, unquote, hogs, dogs, and garbage. Nobody liked New York City. Jefferson and the Southerners hated the weather. They said they have, uh, as best as they could tell, they have 10 months of winter, <laughs> no fall and spring. Um, so one of the problems, what, what they did is they agreed they would go to Philadelphia for nine years, during which time the Capitol would be built on the banks of the Potomac. One of the problems of being in Philadelphia was Philadelphia was the hotbed of abolition at the time. And Quakers and abolitionists and, and others were working out of Philadelphia. So Southerners in Congress did not like going to Philadelphia because they couldn't bring their slaves there. There were also some laws in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania that if a slave was in the city for X amount of time, they would automatically be freed. So what some Southerners had to do was, let's say, bring a slave for a month and send them home, have another one come up and then switch them back and forth. So they, so even this factored into the location of the capital, and it ultimately uh, assured that Southerners would not vote for Philadelphia, which was our largest, most important city at the time, and the no-brainer for where the capital should have been. But um, so, yeah, you see the presence of slavery in all those facets of the capital. Yeah, brilliant stuff. One thing I do want to talk about before we end this conversation, which has just been great, is just how approachable your book is and how you wrote the book. You know, it's published by Georgetown University Press. Obviously, university presses sometimes have more of an academic flavor. It's, you know, like big words, you know, lots of analysis, which your book has, but it's just so approachable. It's written in a narrative style that a lot of people can enjoy. And I just wanted to commend you on that because just picking it up, it's almost like you're reading a novel, but yet there's this great analysis within it. And was that obvious, obviously, is that just your writing style or, you know, was that something that you planned on doing just from the get go? Well, Daniel, first off, let me say you made my day. Um, <laughs> uh, nothing like complimenting someone on their dog, their kids or grandkids or their book. Right. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I, in my three decade career as a, a professor, uh, even though I have a, a certain rank today that I don't have to do it. I still teach freshman classes. In fact, I'm teaching one now. I had one earlier today as we're as we're recording this this podcast. So I've always taught a freshman class, and you can't walk in to a group of freshmen who are undecided in terms of their major or are biology majors, and talk to them about history and government uh, in in a bland way. You've got to make it a performance art. You've got to show them how they're vested in this. You have to tell stories. You have to make it like a novel. You have to make a protagonist and there's a problem. And then, you know, the protagonist is on the outs and then they finally overcome an obstacle, which is what history is, just like every great uh, movie or opera or, or, or novel or story or epic. Um, and this is certainly an epic among epics. So uh, I, I've always kind of, I've always tried to write and speak in a way that was approachable to everyone. And I think teaching freshman classes for so long has probably helped. 
And, you know, I, I love being an academic. I, I've written scholarly journal articles and yada, yada, yada. But uh, I've always been one for, you know, popular history that uh, it doesn't do us a lot of good if the same dozen historians debate the same minute argument. We need to write and reach out to the larger population and get people involved in history and, and try to develop a love and a passion for history. And so, but that's part of it. The other part of it, I would say, Daniel, is this story is so compelling. I mean, what's better than a story with Washington and Hamilton and as well as slavery and not having a capital city and a new nation ready to fall apart? I mean, it, you know, it, part of the author's job is to get out of the way of the story and let the story just tell itself. And uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned Georgetown University Press. I, I was privileged and honored to work with them. It's a great press. They're publishing one of my upcoming books as well. Uh, and it made a lot of sense because they're in Washington, D.C. And I'll tell you, some of the faculty, staff, and reviewers on that press, they know that capital city in, out, up, and down, and all around. So they, they were they were a great help in putting this, uh, this book together. So thanks for that, Daniel. Oh, no, thank you. And again, we're talking about Dr. Robert Watson's awesome book called George Washington's Final Battle, The Epic Struggle to Build a Capital City and a Nation. And Robert... What are you working on now? What can we expect to learn from you in the future? Okay. I just finished two books. One's with Georgetown. Uh, it's called When Washington Burned. I figured I wrote a book about the creation of the city. I needed to write a book about challenges facing it. So it's the story of the capital city being burned by the British on August 24th, 1814. The British marched in during the War of 1812 and torched the city. And we almost didn't rebuild it. There were calls to move the capital. I mean, this... You know, the British even briefly contemplated occupying our capital city. This is uh, this is pretty darn close to uh, the country, uh, you know, a death knell for the country. And of course, in the wake of the January 6th attack on our capital, this has even more resonance. But the book's also about the young clerks like Stephen Pleasanton, who were called up to military service. And yet these men raced back to the capital and saved our declaration Constitution, Bill of Rights, literally hours before the British, they were riding out of the city with the documents as the British were marching into the city. They could see a giant cloud kicked up by thousands of boots marching on dirt roads. So uh, that, and that'll be out this summer. And then I also just finished a book for Roman and Littlefield publishers on the nation's first pandemic. Uh, COVID affected all of us. It affected me, you, everybody, uh, in countless ways. So it got me thinking about uh, other pandemics in history. Everybody knows about the Spanish influenza, you know, 1918-ish. Uh, so uh, I wrote a book. It'll be out, I think, in June. Uh, we're still chewing on titles, maybe American Plague, American Pandemic. It's about the 1793 yellow fever pandemic that struck the East Coast and the capital city and it resulted in the complete evacuation of our capital city. We went for 100 days without a functioning government. The military, the president, everybody skedaddled because everybody was dying of this disease. And yellow fever, which is caused by a, an African mosquito, Adidas aegypti. And back then, there was no known cause and no known cure. So the terror of uh, this disease. And there were even debates over masking, over social distancing, over curfews, over quarantines, uh, and the same sort of political arguments 
as we saw during COVID, uh, popped up in 1793. So there's some remarkable, intriguing, and a, quite frankly, appalling parallels to the recent one. So it's uh, both those books will be out this summer. I'm, I'm excited about both of them. Wow. I can't wait to see those. Those are both extremely relevant to the times that we live in now. So that sounds great. Thank you. Yeah, that was the idea to try to make them relevant to helping us to understand what's happening, uh, what's been happening the last two years with uh, the assault on the Capitol and the the crisis and panic uh, and unpreparedness over this pandemic. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Again, talking with Dr. Robert Watson about his book, George Washington's Final Battle, The Epic Struggle to Build a Capital City and a Nation. Robert, thank you so much for coming on to the New Books Network. Really appreciate it. It's a fascinating book. It's my pleasure, Daniel. And I want to thank you for this service that you're offering to promote uh, interest in history. That is that is a wonderful thing. If you ever need an, another author or, or commentator, say the word. Thank you for what you're doing, Daniel. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, have a great one. Thank you, everyone.